0: So today's scripture reading is from the message, Luke six seventeen through 26. Coming down off the mountain with them, he stood on a plain surrounded by disciples and was soon joined by a huge congregation from all over Judea and Jerusalem, even from the seaside towns of Tyre and Sidon. They had come both to hear him and to be cured of their diseases. Those disturbed by evil spirits were healed. Everyone was trying to touch him. So much energy surging from him. So many people healed. Then he spoke, you're blessed when you've lost it all. God's kingdom is here for the finding. You're blessed when you're ravenously hungry. Then you're ready for the messianic meal. You're blessed when the tears flow freely for joy comes with the morning. Count yourself blessed every time someone cuts you down or throws you out. Every time someone smears or blackens your name to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and that that person is uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Skip like a lamb if you like, for even though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My preachers and witnesses have always been treated like this. But it's trouble ahead if you think you have it made, when you have is all you'll ever get. And it's trouble ahead if you're satisfied with yourself Yourself will not satisfy you for long, and it's trouble ahead if you think life's all fun and games. There's suffering to be met, and you're going to meet it. There's trouble ahead when you live only for the approval of others, saying what flatters them, doing what indulges them. Popularity contests are not truth. They're not truth contests. Look how many scoundrel preachers were approved by your ancestors. Your task is to be true not popular this is the word of the lord being grounded
1: when i think about being grounded through the roots through which i came through my family of origin through my church home it's given me a lot of uh invitation to think and reflect the past few weeks i don't know how many of you have ever done uh, ancestry.com and did like a you know family tree thing uh, we kind of, Terry and I, my fiancee, have been kind of on a journey with that, and it's quite fascinating um, until I actually found a relative uh, that had some kind of, I don't know, um, federal land deed or something. You remember what I told you last night by James Buchanan? Anyway, in the, the, the notes said it was same, signed by President James Buchanan, and in in the year that it was signed and it just so happens that I'm engaged to a political science professor and he said yeah, but that was not the year he was president. So who knows the truth with that? It was kind of a bummer. But I I know that at one time my mom told me that in the 1930s I had some cousins that robbed a train and went to federal prison. I haven't found that story yet, but I'm still looking. Um, But we can find some skeletons in those closets, right? I found out a great-grandmother doesn't have a father on her birth certificate. She lived till 1990, so she was a part of my life up until I went off to college, and I realized she didn't have a father. What's that story? I'm sure that's interesting. Some of us with our family of origin, the roots that are there can be rather unhealthy, and that's too bad, and that brings sadness hardship and pain but what I am learning is that even if that's the story now that we're grown up we can make a different story for the family that we leave behind and that's what I hope that if you have that story of um, a family that wasn't there for you that let you down that you can do something different for the family that you have now and that's why I'm so excited that uh, Joel Shoemaker is going to share with us this morning. Um, as the mom of three children out of four who are in the LGBTQIA community, there are moments in my life when I wish I had responded differently than what I did at the time. But I can apologize for it and learn and do better. And that's what I've done. And you know there's so much to learn. there's so much about this. I feel pretty old and unwoke in a lot of areas, but it doesn't mean that I can't be taught. I'm not too old for that. I can learn, and I hope that that's what we all can do. I wanted to read a couple of excerpts from Joel 's book that I, his book is um, bacon grief. Grab it if you can. it's really cute and funny. So Joel's character in this book his characters are Charlie and Tim. So I want to share an excerpt from uh, Charlie's point of view. When he, Charlie, was seven years old, he first knew he wasn't heterosexual. He just didn't know the word for it. He also knew it wouldn't be an issue with his family. Isn't that beautiful? He was pretty sure they knew before he did. After all, his purple pants were his favorite. Not that a heterosexual wouldn't wear purple pants, and that's in all caps, in case you can't read that correctly in my voice. This is encouraged behavior, which would likely result in greater happiness for heterosexuals. I agree, purple pants probably would make us happier. This begins and ends his presidential campaign. On the other hand, while he also knew from a young age, though it's more difficult for him to redefine exactly, he knew his family of pastors and churchgoers and homeschoolers, would take major issue with this unforgivable defiance, for that's just what they saw this as. His family would see it as, we just want you to be happy after all. And then as Charlie's having a conversation with God, they were innocent once. They always are once upon a time. They were the type that skipped rocks and made mancala out of egg cartons, the type that collected stamps and traded Pokemon cards. Something happens. It always does. And when it does, afterwards, every day, he prays for it to go away. Without ceasing, he prays, Lord, heal me. Take away my sin. Make me just like everyone else. He prays a similar prayer at first. He prays to be acceptable to God. He prays that he take away his desire. He regularly prays that. He just asks that he is able to maintain his keen, fashioned sense. And so they pray. And in that way, they're exactly the same. Or they were. He still does. He prays for forgiveness for his thoughts and for a change to his nature and a ceasing of actions that seem inevitable. He listens, on the other hand. He sits and waits now. And every once in a while, if he's really patient and he really listens, he feels like he can hear something. He feels like he hears almost a sort of reassurance. He feels like his requests have been heard for years. And he begins to understand that maybe, just maybe, nothing has changed because nothing is wrong. On a good day, he hears... I accept you just the way you are. He hears. I always have. And he hears. I always will. Joel, the floor is now yours.
2: The potato family sat down to dinner. It was a mother potato and three daughter potatoes and they were sitting around and they were talking about their day and these are potatoes, so their day usually isn't that exciting. But this day was different, when all of a sudden the eldest daughter spoke up and she said, Mother, I have some news. And the mother said, Well, that's great, but what is your news? And the eldest daughter, Potato, said, Well, Mother, I'm getting married. And the mother said, Well, that's terrific. And who, eldest daughter, Potato, might you be marrying? And the eldest daughter, Potato, says, Well, I'm marrying a russet. And the mother said, A russet? Now, that's a fine tater, a fine tater indeed. So they go on talking about how exciting it is that the eldest daughter, Potato, is getting married and she's making the announcement on this this very night when all of a sudden the middle daughter speaks up and she says, I too have some news. And the mother said, well that's good but what could be better than my eldest daughter getting married and making the announcement this very night? And the middle daughter says, well I too am getting married and the mother says, this is terrific. Two of my daughters are getting married, they're both making the announcement on the same night, this very night, and who middle daughter, Potato, might you be marrying? And the middle daughter potato says, well, I'm married in Idaho. And the mother said, in Idaho. Now that's a fine tater, a fine tater indeed. So they go on talking about how exciting it is. The eldest daughter potato and the middle daughter potato are getting married and they're both making the announcement on the same night, this very night, when all of the sudden the youngest daughter speaks up and she's a little shyer, but she raises her hand. She says, mother, I too have some news. And the mother says, Well, that's okay, but what could be better than my eldest daughter, Potato, and my middle daughter, Potato, both getting married, both making the announcement on the same night, this very night, and of course, the youngest daughter, Potato, says, well, it might not be a surprise to you at this point, but I, too, am getting married, and the mother says, this is perfect. (laughs) All of my daughters are getting married. They're all making the announcement on the same night, this very night, and who, youngest daughter, Potato, might you be marrying? And the youngest daughter, Potato, says, well, I married Dan Rather, and the mother says, Dan Rather, but he's just a commentator. (laughs) (laughs) I've been a storyteller, an entertainer, and specifically a magician since I was seven years old. I've told this same silly little joke for at least the past 17 years and and probably longer. I learned it from my grandpa and because I like to set a low bar for myself. (laughs) You'll see. I have a, I've been doing magic since I was seven, and I did bring along a deck of cards, and just for simplicity, I'm going to have uh, Mer, uh, Melinda help me with this, um, but I'm going to turn one of these. I think I'm going to turn, I didn't plan this projector part out, but I want the camera to see if they can. So I, I'm going to turn this music stand around, and hopefully you can see what's on it. If not, I'll tell you what's on it. Um, is that, do you think that's going to be in the camera? or? Okay, cool, so this pink card is a prediction. It's just something that I wrote down in advance of coming here today, and I'm just gonna set it right here, and we'll get to that in just a moment. And then, like I said, I did bring along a deck of cards. You don't have to see them, but you can hopefully see at least that they're mixed up and they're all there. And I'm just gonna have Melinda quickly choose one, so if you would just touch one, you don't pull it out, just touch it for now. Which one? The King of
0: Hearts. The King of Hearts,
2: are you sure that's the one you want? Sure. Even if I asked you to choose a different one, that would be the one that you would choose? Perfect. This is the card that you're choosing. And this one right here, the King of Hearts is the card that Melinda's choosing. And just so we're clear, we did not set this up beforehand. We did not. And so you had no idea you were going to come here today and choose a card. And you had no idea that you would choose the King of Hearts. Take your hand like this, and I'm just going to give it to you. And you can actually take that to your seat. Just hold it for just a moment. She chose the King of Hearts. She could have chosen any card that she wanted to. I wrote a word on this card. This is my prediction. And I think, by the way, I should have prefaced this by saying, I've been practicing this trick for a long time. And I think you're really going to be impressed by this. That's a cue for you should like it. Okay, (laughs) perfect. So this is a card. This is the word that I wrote down or a prediction that I made in advance. You chose the king of hearts. And we've established that you had no idea that you would be choosing that card coming here today. And is it your lucky card, your card that you win a lot of money in poker with or just a random card and you have it. And again, there are 52 cards that she could have chosen. She chose the king of hearts. And this is my prediction. And I'm going to open it up, and I'm going to have you read it out loud if you don't mind. Bruce? It says Bruce. That's my prediction. And when I'm practicing this trick, the King of Hearts actually is the one card that I call Bruce. Thank you. <laughs> In just a moment, though, you will, you will probably want to touch that card and turn it over. Don't do it until I ask you okay. to, Okay. Because I I didn't know if that would be impressive. I never do. That's why I I like to survey these sorts of things. And so I wrote, uh, just in case you didn't believe me, just in case coming in here you you didn't believe that the King of Hearts was the one card that I called Bruce, I wrote on the back of some of these cards. Like I said, don't turn yours over yet, but the back of this one says Paul. Paul is my grandpa, and he told very, very long jokes. My favorite story about my grandpa is how much he loved it when I stabbed myself in my eye. My grandpa built a stage for me. He took me to magic lessons. And he would ask me over and over, practically every time he introduced me to someone new, do the creamer trick. Do the trick with the creamer. The creamer trick is the trick where I stab myself in the eye. It's just that the creamer was the secret. You take the creamer and you hide it into your hand, and then you stab it like you're stabbing yourself in the eye, and the cream comes out. It's really fun. Try it at home. My grandfather ruined the punchline every single time. My grandfather's name is Paul. Paul told long jokes. My joke, the one about the potatoes, it's longer. My joke, the one about the potatoes, it's worse than my grandpa's jokes. And so to my grandpa, who's now in heaven, I win. That's Paul. He's the queen of hearts, which is close, but you didn't choose the queen of hearts, you didn't choose Paul, you chose the king of hearts. This is Viola. My grandmother was Viola. She and I would roll half dollars, you know, in paper, the paper rolls. Um, I don't know why we did that, but it was a thing that we would do, and one day I found a coin that was the same size and the same shape as a half dollar, but everything else about it was different. I was very young at this point, and she told me to keep it. She wasn't interested in that coin because that coin was not a half dollar. So I kept it, and I would later look it up. It was a 1909 Morgan silver dollar. In mint condition, it would have been worth $900. It's in trash condition, and it's worthless, and I still have it today. I've written the name of family members on the back of these cards. This is Viola, this is the six of spades. You didn't choose the six of spades, the six of spades. She chose the, what, king of hearts, king of hearts. So she did not choose Viola. This is my sister, Ronnie. I wrote her name on the back of a card because she's one of my most ardent supporters. This is my father's name, Richard, another one of my supporters. And then this is my mom's name, Tina. I could go on and list all of these, but I won't. But I will tell you that they're all members of my family. This is my uncle, Jeff. He's on the back of the two of spades. These are my family's names. And my uncle's name is Bruce. There are 52 cards here, 52 members of my family. You chose the king of hearts, I predicted, My Uncle Bruce, you can now turn it over and tell us what it says.
1: It says Bruce.
2: It says Bruce. (laughs) I grew up with all of these people in the Catholic tradition. I don't think I need this anymore, so I'm just going to put that down there. I wrote a little bit about that in my tiny little sort of creative memoir called Bacon Grief, and I'm going to share those pages with you now. Growing up Catholic is kind of hilarious. I'm sure you agree. They don't tell you why you do anything. So here's the plan. Dress up, kind of. Save your best clothing. You know, for me, that's the fancy shirt, the one with the buttons and the bow tie, because neckties are stupid. And did you know my story would be so quickly, so divisive? Well, anyway, I submit necktie lovers can keep reading, even though they're wrong, because, uh, and also the bow tie is fake, because zero human beings have time for real bow ties robots and other artificial intelligence probably do, for Christmas and Easter, but still, this isn't casual Friday. And here, it's not your Sunday best, per se, but leave the cargo shorts at home. Actually, let's get this out of the way. We don't wear cargo shorts. Go, take those to your nearest donation bin. For some reason, Goodwill accepts them and gives your parents a tax deduction letter, despite the utter uselessness and total lack of resaleability. Go ahead, we'll wait. I assure you, this is for the best. So divisive. And back to Catholicism and not knowing anything about it. But we are good Catholics, so we still do everything. And we always, always sit in the same pew and we genuflect. This is one of the best words and it's too rarely used. And we sit and we stand. And when the bells ring, the bread turns into actual Jesus. And I think the miracle is that it still tastes stale and weird. We're there. Most of us don't know why we do what we do, but we do it every week over and over again. And we are there until we aren't. I fell in love with this youth group at a Baptist church down the street because it was funny and meaningful and also because they had pizza. And while it was probably the pizza, it could have also been that I actually heard a bunch of adults speaking a language about the Bible that made sense to me, that kept me going. But to be perfectly transparent, it was actually the pizza. Also while cargo shorts are evidently inexplicably also allowed here, we still never, never wear them. When they say, love the sinner, not the sin, it is my belief that this is what they may be referring to. Now that I've been going to this small group for the past two years, I truly feel a greater understanding of Jesus and who he is and what his message actually means, much more than I ever got in 14 years of Catholicism, which is not necessarily intended to be a knock on Catholicism. After all, it is the root of all of our denominations. It's the root of who I am. Indeed, Catholicism is calisthenics, but it's so much more than that. No matter what this youth group teaches me or what church I end up belonging to, I'll always go back to my family church from time to time and worship with them because it's important to them, and frankly, it's important to me. I just also like a greater understanding of Jesus and pizza. Duh. The Cargo Shorts bit is an actual tribute to Andrew. Andrew's my husband, and for those those that don't know. And if you read my book, you'll know that he's the Tim to my Charlie, He hates cargo shorts, and for the record, I used to own some, and then I got married. That passage was very easily, or very early on in the book, and it's really, this book is very short. In fact, this presentation meant to highlight the book, and my upbringing may be longer than the book itself. I didn't check the word count. The story continues with the introduction of Tim, and they go to church together, and they participate in theater together, and they chat about their favorite words, and in reality, it is a romance. Gag, I know. But it is Valentine's Day Eve, so here goes nothing. By the way, I thrive in the chorus. I'm like, really good at it. For example, my first stage direction is to cross downstage left to upstage right. There's a fountain in the middle, and I'm supposed to linger a bit there, you know? So my cross lasts for two and a half pages, and it looks like the street is busy, even though it is, in fact, the same three or four people over and over again. This is heavy Shakespearean stuff. And I just feel like a lot of people struggle to sell these sorts of crosses. You know, we have some students who will, I don't know, inexplicably examine the fountain as if it's some extreme curiosity, or perhaps there's some sort of inspector or detective combing for fingerprints. Honestly, who but their parents is buying that? Me, on the other hand, my casual saunter is so real, it's as if I walk this street every day. My pause at the fountain is so natural, I know my mother is staring at me, loving this, beaming with pride. She doesn't even care about the arguably much more important dialogue happening downstage. That's acting, and she knows it. I am thriving. Crackers, it turns out, might be terrible fodder for singers. I have sort of crumbs in my mouth, and they're kind of spewing forth during this number, hitting other chorus members, salting to saliva, just a bit, whatever. My dancing makes up for it, and I finish my cross. I only have a few scenes, of course, but I'm nailing them. Otherwise, I spend my time waiting in the wings, eyes and ears on Tim and Sarah, mostly on Tim. He's such a gift to our theater program, and even with such limited preparation, this role really fits him. I'm excited because my next stage direction is to walk by with two suitcases and hand one to him, tip my hat, and I'm off. It's another nearly full cast scene, and I added the handoff of the suitcase myself because I wanted some interaction with our leading man, my leading man. Otherwise, we're not blocked together at all, which was some kind of oversight, and honestly, he had to get his prop from somewhere. Mrs. S either didn't notice or did. In any case, the hat tip, again, completely natural, was all hers. Genius. I am rocking this fedora. The thing about props, suitcases, really any container, the thing that sets me apart is I'm always thinking about the contents, how much they should weigh. This is because it drives me crazy how actors, real ones, people on television and the movies, stand there with a cup of coffee so unbearably, obviously empty. I guess I get it. I suppose I sympathize with the idea of not wanting to get burned or spilling or something. Maybe the prop budget is too small for coffee-like contents. I don't know. I doubt it. But honestly, sir, you're Ben Affleck. You've got like 207 Oscars or whatever. Maybe you don't, who cares? Just the point is, act like the cup is full. It's literally your job. And how hard is it? How am I supposed to believe you're Batman or some kind of astronaut or athlete, or you even ever actually liked Jennifer Garner when you can't even fake sloshing around some kind, any kind of liquid? So it goes without saying that I've spent a lot of time analyzing these pieces of luggage, how I would carry them if they had anything in them. Tim's, the one I hand him, I've decided contains six folded-up T-shirts and three beautiful cable-knit sweaters and four pairs of pants, at least one of which I hope is purple, as I'm handing it off. He leans in. It's as if he has to whisper something to me, only to me, and he puts his face upstage of mine, even though he's a central role, the focal point to my passerby, and what could he possibly have to say only, unbelievably and very, very quickly, perhaps imperceptibly, to everyone but me, only me, obviously me? He kisses me on the cheek and walks away to continue the scene with his empty suitcase in hand. I walk off. He kissed me. So it doesn't matter that he sucked at carrying a suitcase, that it's obviously empty, that the whole auditorium, including my mother, knows it's empty. He kissed me. We talked about the suitcase, you know. Of course we did. Of course, while he's trying to memorize countless lines and songs, I tell him how important it is to believe in the weight of the suitcase, really lift the thing, carry it, struggle, play it up. It matters. It doesn't matter, I guess. Only, okay, obviously I can't leave it at that. It does. It totally does. It definitely matters. It just matters so much less, because two weeks ago we were fighting about holding hands in public, and now in front of everyone, everyone and no one, no one but me and God, I have had my first kiss. So what if the guy sucks at handling his props? He kissed me. I am thriving. Tim and Charlie initially meet online because Andrew and Joel initially met online. And Tim is a pastor's son because Andrew is a pastor's son. And Charlie looks great in purple pants because duh. <laughs> by the by, they wind up at the end of the book, spoiler alert, going to a church just like Imago de Peoria because duh. There are some serious notes in the book and some sort of heavy notes that are glossed over, but I truly set out to write a silly, happy book mostly full of nonsense. The young adult fiction space is angsty, and in my decade of librarianship and my extensive work within the Rainbow Roundtable of the American Library Association, which is the oldest gay professional organization in the country and maybe the world, having sat on several award committees within that organization, I noticed that the message found within books for queer teens with faith backgrounds was always the same. The gay or lesbian or bisexual or intersex or questioning teenager always and always leaves the faith. And while that is a truth for many people, LGBTQIA plus and otherwise, it wasn't my truth. And I knew there were other th- others like me, others that wanted to cling to Jesus. Here are just a few of them. <clears throat> Quote, I'd love to see more books that celebrate faith and sexuality. As someone who identifies as a lesbian woman and a Christian, I search for fiction that reflects my life, and as I'm sure you know, it just isn't there yet. So along with the congrats goes a very grateful thank you." End quote. Quote, this is wonderful. I'm buying it for my library and posted it in the New Evangelicals Facebook group. There are about 3,000 people in it, and I think many would find your book really helpful. It is a group of people struggling with their faith, LGBTQ affirming, mostly, everyone is at different places, asking questions and asking the American Evangelical Church to do better. I'm so happy you wrote this book, thank you." End quote. And finally, and I might add, that as, uh, this book has been out for just over two months, and this is the only review that is not five stars, which is rude. <laughs> but it also just happens to be my favorite. quote. I don't usually write reviews, but for this book, I felt compelled to do so. This is by no means a linguistic masterpiece, and the non-traditional format took some getting used to. But as a whole, the elements of the book came together to better tell the story. Having grown up in a conservative Catholic household and as a member of the LGBT community, the themes of this book really hit close to home. I've been struggling with my beliefs and identity again recently, and this book, given to me at a school meet and greet I almost didn't attend, seems very much like a sign from God that I'll be okay. Thank you, Joel Schumacher, for that small comfort." End quote. quote. Bacon Grief is just a silly little creative memoir that might make a few people feel less alone. And by the way, and this isn't written down, but we live in a world now where these types of books are being taken out of schools. And I think it's a problem, and I hope that we win that fight, and we are fighting, we, we being librarians. And librarians are warriors. We were, in Congress, the only people to fight against the Patriot Act when it first came out. So we are on the forefront, and we will ultimately succeed in getting these books where they need to be. Bacon Grief is just a silly little book, and it might make a few people feel less alone, and that might be worth everything. That might be the point. Grandparents die. I fictionalize their death in this book just to keep them with me in some way, I think. Family members move away. We grow apart. or Our priorities just change. Life happens. Still, Paul and Viola and Ronnie and Tina and Richard and way more than 52 others are the people that have affected me and have shaped me and have made me who I am today. You can read about some of them in my book. Thank you.